Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago. Yay. She's right, you are better than first service. <laughs> So for those of you who work at churches, serve at churches, know people who work and serve at churches, most of you are getting to this week and saying, "Ah, we survived Easter. All the people who got dunked, all the people who joined, all the people who came because their mom said, look, 21 hours of labor and you are coming to church with me on Easter. I used to go to a church where the pastor actually said, look, you regular people, just don't come on Sunday, Easter, because it's just gonna be too crowded and it's just gonna be too much. The people who never come to church and only come to church on Sunday, leave some room for them. He would actually tell us that every single year. And so we got to Monday and we were all pretty wiped out and Tuesday and Wednesday, and we were all pretty wiped out. But then I started thinking around Thursday or so, And I thought about how they survived the first Easter. It's kind of not like us. I mean, we just have to put the dishes away from Easter Sunday dinner, and we just have to get some sleep and rest. But how did the first disciples, how did did everybody in that Jesus-following group of people How did they actually survive the first Easter? I started thinking about that and I thought, it must have been really hard for them because they didn't actually have a Bible or a sunrise service to wake up to the next day and go, like Paul said, yay, we win. You know, we're we're all good. Um, It was the end of life as they knew it when Jesus died. It was not a good Friday for them. And that Saturday when Jesus was still in the grave, they were freaking out because it was a really difficult thing to handle. And so I've been giving a lot of thought to how they survived the first Easter. So I didn't want to rush past the resurrection and say, yay, we win, and then just kind of start with that pre-Pentecost Holy Spirit dumping itself on our heads kind of a thing. There's, there's some stuff that happens in there, in that Easter season, but right following that resurrection that I think will give us some really good learnings and some really great um, pictures and portraits of how we manage to conduct our own lives in the light of the fact that we have a risen savior. I wanna look at the very first encounter Jesus has right after he's risen with Mary Magdalene. And Mary has a lot to teach us about what it means to be identified with Christ and identity in general, where we find ours, how we manage it, how we respond when what we've identified ourselves with is suddenly gone from us or lost. Our home base for today is going to be John 20, 11 through 18, and we're gonna zero in on a specific part of it, but we need a ramp in and a ramp out so that we can kind of get the picture here. 
Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put, where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that, she, and she told him, them that he had said these things to her. Now, a little background. Mary Magdalene is probably one of the most misrepresented people in scripture. And I say that because most of us think of her because of the, the Catholic uh, Magdalene houses, things like that. Most of us think of her as this tragic fallen woman who was a follower of Jesus. But the truth is, is that she wasn't that. She's not the woman who wept on Jesus' feet and dried it with her hair. She's not the one who anointed his feet just before he was to die. She's not the woman taken in adultery. And the reason that matters is because if your, her identity is wrapped up in those things, then we've got a false picture of who she is. She actually becomes associated with being a fallen woman because somewhere around the fifth or sixth century, one of the popes decided to preach an unfortunate sermon and he literally lumped that woman in Luke 7 to Mary Magdalene in uh, Luke 8. We meet Mary in Luke 8 verses 1 and 2 and at the end of Luke 7 we find that woman who cried on Jesus' feet. And that Pope actually preached a series of unfortunate sermons where he said they are one and the same and there is no biblical evidence for that but the damage was done and it lasted all the way up from the sixth century until 1969, when they finally said, okay, that's kind of not true. <laughs> now, as a person who has found myself kind of close to or next to some of the wrong kind of people and then other people assuming things about me because of it, and all of us have been in that place where we find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, and then somebody kind of assumes some things that may or may not be true about us, I'm kind of sensitive to those kinds of things, so I just want you to know that that is not who Mary Magdalene is. And she is, what she is and who she is, is a woman who, out of whom seven demons were cast, that Jesus cast demons out of her. She's also Mary Magdalene, not because her dad's name was Magdalene or her mom's name was that, but because she was Mary of Magdala, which is a city around on the coast of Galilee near Capernaum. So she is Mary of Magdala in the same way Joseph of Arimathea or Jesus of Nazareth is from one of those places. So that's really a name that's a designation of where she's from. Now why is that important? That's important because in all likelihood she was a single woman because most women who were married had their names associated with another person. 
so-and-so the wife of Peter, Mary the mother of Jesus. Your name as a woman was always associated with the man with whom you were associated with. So she didn't have, probably didn't have a husband because she was Mary Magdalene. So it was just Mary from this place. So we know that she had demons cast out of her. We know she was probably single. And we know that she had money because in Luke 8, he talks about how she and a few other women who Jesus had healed actually followed him and supported him, it says, out of their substance. In King James, out of their resources. In other translations, out of their own funds in other resources. So she probably had her own money which is probably another reason why I appreciate her because she's a single woman doing the doggone thing and she's got her own money. So I'm not gonna let you talk about her too bad, right? So now we bring this woman into this story. Mary Magdalene is single. She's following Jesus. And we find that she's probably not a woman of loose moral character because women like that in scripture usually traveled or walked or spent time alone. Think woman at the well. She came to the well by herself because people didn't hang out. Usually when we see Mary Magdalene in scripture, she's hanging out with a group of women. So the chances that she was this fallen woman, this scandalous person, she probably was not that because she spent a lot of time in the presence of a lot of women. And if she was that person, then we might actually see something where it was, where somebody said something about her with regards to that. So we also find out that she is, in a lot of ways, placed in stark contrast to the disciples in very positive ways. Mary is one of the last people to see Jesus alive. She was at the cross, standing. People knew who she was. She's in scripture as one of the last witnesses who watched him die while the disciples scattered. She was one of the first people at the tomb. It says in, some, in one of the gospels that it was still dark outside when she went to the tomb. She went at the very first opportunity that she could go to the tomb while the disciples, it says, were hiding away, locked behind a door because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. So there's something really great about her. You know, she's, she's this disciple of Jesus who is brave and courageous and sacrificial, and she's probably got as much, if not a little more, at stake in the crucifixion of Jesus, if we think about it. Because she's a single woman, she is a woman alone. Jesus had been her cover, her protection. So now she's by herself, now that Jesus is gone. And single women tended to be viewed with suspicion in those days. She was possessed with demons until Jesus cast them out, which meant she probably didn't have a lot of friends because she was an outcast, she was a social outcast. She had left home, given all of her substance, given all of her devotion to Jesus, so Jesus, and now he's dead. She was traveling with him, and now he's gone. She was caring deeply for him, just as her master, as her leader, as the one who was discipling her, and now he's gone. He dies on a cross just like that, 
everything that is associated with who she is that's positive is now gone. One horrible night, and she's lost a huge part of who she is. I wonder if she's questioning now, does she belong in this world? Who does she belong to if she does? The same question comes to us today. Who or what are we finding our identity in? And what happens to our sense of who we are if we are suddenly faced with that person or that thing or those people or that position? if it's taken away from us, if it's gone. I think about a woman who grew up being somebody's daughter and then she was somebody's wife and somebody's mother and somebody's employee and somebody's grandparent. One day she's retired and her husband leaves her and her children are no longer there. And what happens to the woman who never learned how to be somebody? What happens to the man who was in his 60s who loses his job in a recession and has only known how to work his whole life? Or the spouse that loses somebody? Or the person whose whole life is measured by how much money he or she has and that money is suddenly gone? Or the beautiful person who gets in a car accident and now doesn't have the looks that got so much attention. What are we finding our identity in and what happens to us when we lose what we find our identity in? My mother is suffering with Alzheimer's and I saw her a week or two ago and for the first time she didn't know who I was. My sister had to tell her who I was and I didn't realize how much of my identity was wrapped up in being a daughter, in being her daughter until she didn't recognize me, until she didn't do that thing that she does when I'm somewhere in proximity. She finds a way to pick up my clothes or straighten them out or you know, rub my hair or something. Okay, I need to know who let me leave my office with a curler in my hair, I just felt it. <laughs> See, now part of my identity is wrapped up in how I look. Shekinah is always the person who's supposed to tell me, Michelle, you have a curler in your hair. Really? Seriously, Shekinah? You saw me walk in the door and I got a curler in my hair? Okay, now I'm gonna have to keep it in there because I need y'all to think that I'm more secure than I actually am. <laughs> Thank you, Shekinah. Blame her that I have a curler in the back of my hair. Unbelievable. So back to my mom. Then I think about her and while I was thinking about myself, and how my identity is wrapped up in being her daughter, then I thought about how she must feel to be in the company of strangers that are telling her, we're your children, and we love you, and hi, and these odd people keep coming up and hugging her and saying hello, and people that every once in a while she doesn't recognize feed her and clothe her, and have a room for her in their home, and what happens when you lose the thing that you identify yourself by and with? If you wonder what your identity is wrapped up in, ask yourself the question, 
who am I without blank? Or say, I don't know who I am without blank. That is usually a good indicator of where you find your identity. Who, I don't know who I am without my money. I don't know who I am without my friends. I don't know who I am without my spouse. I don't know who I am now that my children have left and gone to college. I don't know who I am without my memories. I don't know who I am without those things. The most human response when we find ourselves faced with a loss of identity is to do what we're used to doing or do what we used to do. But we need to somehow reach for something that's normal, some sense of normal. In other words, we just want to be able to do something that makes us feel like there's floor beneath our feet, right? And we find all of the people who are around Jesus kind of doing the same thing. Early in the morning, Mary gets up and she goes and gets all of these spices and this oil and these anoint, the myrrh and the perfumes and all of these things, and she wants to go and care for Jesus because that's all she knows how to do. So let me go and take care. Now that seems like an unexceptional and normal thing to do, except when you consider the fact that both Joseph of Arimathea and, Nic and Nicodemus had gone to Pilate and said, can we have the body of Jesus? And Nicodemus went out and bought some spices and perfumes and myrrh and oils and things like that to anoint the body of Jesus. Now the average person got maybe 10 pounds, 20 pounds of these things. A good person got 20 pounds worth of anointing oils, things like that, for their, to anoint a dead body. The greatest people in the community got 40 pounds of spices and oils and things to wrap and anoint the body and then wrap in linens. Nicodemus went out and got 75 pounds of stuff to wrap up the body of Jesus. Some accounts say that it was 100 pounds. Now, Mary saw this happen. She watched them wrap the body, it says in Luke's account. She watched them do it, saw where they placed the body, and she still went out and got more. Why? Because she doesn't know what else to do. What are you gonna do with a dead Jesus? You can't feed him. What are you gonna do with a dead Jesus except anoint his body? That's all you can do. That's all they know to do. That's the only thing, nor I, I just have to do, it doesn't matter that he's got 100 pounds already weighing him down, I'm gonna put another 40 on there. Everybody's just, they don't know what else to do. So they're just gonna do that to his body. So now we watch these people working extra, extra, extra hard because that's all they know. That's who they are up to this point. How many of us have done that? We just, when we feel like we're losing our identity, whether it's money or a job or family or whatever, and we just, how many of you have broken up with somebody and the first thing you gotta do is get with somebody else? Because your identity might be wrapped up in the fact that somebody wants you. So you have to go find somebody. What's that old saying? The best way to get over somebody is to get under somebody else? I'm not, I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying it's a thing, right? 
So people do that, and they do that often because they just want somebody to know, somebody wants me. My identity is wrapped up in whether or not I'm desired, whether or not I'm wanted, so I'm gonna leave. Some guy is dating you know, supermodels because he's got a ton of money in the bank, not because he's extra smart or he's extra anything. He's just extra thick in the pockets. He's just got a lot of money, and that's where he finds his identity. That might be where she finds her identity. So what happens is, is you have to just keep doing that thing that makes you feel like you're somebody and that you matter. Your sense of self and your sense of self-worth is sometimes wrapped up in what it is you do. Mary Magdalene was the woman who had seven demons for a long time. She was outcast, they were like, oh, look at the crazy girl. She's Mary with the seven demons until she meets Jesus and then she's Mary who used to have the seven demons and she's Mary who's using her money to serve Jesus and she's Mary who's a disciple of Jesus and she's Mary who is, who is, who is at the feet of Jesus and she's, she's there, she's in the thick of it. That's her identity. She's Mary who serves Jesus. She's Jesus' Mary. She's that woman. She's got it going on. Now, Jesus is gone. He's gone. She goes to the tomb. And when she sees that, she runs to Peter and the rest of the guys and she tells them, they've taken the body and I don't know where they've taken it, but they've taken the body. And so then they come to the tomb. They think she's crazy at first. They think she's absolutely nuts. And you kind of can't blame them. And I'll tell you why later, but you kind of can't blame them. So then they come to the tomb, they confirm, yes, in fact, that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Well, so what happens when they find out he's not in the tomb? Peter and John go back, and they leave Mary there, shattered by herself. Jesus would have understood how broken she was. Jesus would have comforted her. Jesus would have known that this is the worst, most devastating thing that could possibly happen to her. When I think of Mary weeping at that tomb, I think of the words of Edna St. Vincent Millay, and she says, where you used to be, there is a hole in the world, which I find myself constantly walking around in the daytime and falling into at night. I miss you like hell. Her focus is on all that she's lost. Our focus when our identity is at stake is usually trying to get back what we lost. I've got to get back what I lost. What we don't read in the, the account of John that we do read in Luke is that Mary actually encountered an angel before she went to Peter and the rest. And the angel told her, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen. Remember what he told you? That he had to be taken, that he had to be crucified, but that he would rise on the third day? That thing happened. Go tell the disciples. She takes off, she runs to tell the disciples. She kinda sorta tells them that, but she also tells them, they took the body, I don't know where it is. That's why she sounds crazy. 
That's why they think there's something wrong because she's mixing up the whole message. She's saying, she's saying, okay, he's risen, but they took him. And she's saying, he's not there, but she's saying somebody took him and I don't know where he is, as if there's some way to be able to find the body. So he's risen, but the body. He's risen, but the body is gone. So no wonder she sounded odd and crazy in her confusion and in her, 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 her problem with all of this loss. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, not he has risen. Somebody took him out and I don't know where they put him. Now you mix that with he's risen on the third day, it starts to get a little iffy. So no wonder they think she's crazy. So then they come back and they of course are focused on what she's saying. They look in the tomb, sure enough, he's gone, they leave, she's a mess. And this is where Jesus meets her, in her tears, in her devastation, in her sadness. And she can't even see him through her despair and through the loss. She thinks it's the gardener, it says she turns to him and she kinda does one of these deals and says, look, if you took him, just tell me and I'll go get him. If you took him out of here, just tell me where he is and I'll go get him. Now, she's also had some angels say unto her, what, what are you looking for? Why are you crying? Why are you crying? So now, I'm not actually asking that baby that. <laughs> I get why he's crying. But the angels didn't get why Mary was crying. Why are you crying? So she says, because they took my Lord and I don't know where he is. At which point Jesus says to her, why are you crying? She can't even see it. She's like, look, gardener, dude, if you took him, just let me know where he is and I'll get him. And then I don't imagine that Jesus was real dignified at this point, just you know, being his, his usual Jesus on the wall, serene self. He says, Mary, exclamation point. I, I just imagine that he was just like, Mary, I'm talking to you, girl. It's me, Mary. So she turns, she looks at him, and she's like, wait, what? Now, I know that's probably not in the translation, but that was kind of the attitude. Wait, what? So then she goes running at him, and she's about to like grab him. She says, Rabboni, which means you're my master, master discipler, not just a regular rabbi, but like the big kahuna rabbi. And so she says, my master, and she runs at him, and he's like, nope. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Now there's a lot of stuff going on in this particular little piece, and this is kind of what we need to look at. So the first thing he says is, don't hold on to me. Some versions say, don't cling to me. Some say, don't touch me. But here's what you need to know about that. He's not saying, don't physically touch me. Because if that were the case, he would not have gone to see the disciples and then invited Thomas to touch his hands and, you know, and touch his side, right? He didn't have a problem with the actual physical touch. There are some people who say, well, maybe it was because you know, he hadn't ascended to his father, so you know, she couldn't touch him yet because he was in this special state between being dead and being, eh, too much too complicated, too ridiculous. 
He was saying, when you look at the tense of it, do not continue to cling to me as I am. She goes running after him and he's like, wait, 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 wait. You said rabbi, you said rabboni, you said, you, you're, you're saying, this is, this is, ah, this is how I know you. And he's saying, no, 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 don't continue to cling to me like that. I'm ascending, I'm going to my father. And then he says to her, he says, he, there, there are quotes around what he tells her to go say. So instead of just saying, yeah, go tell the disciples, what up dudes, I'm here. He says, I'm gonna tell you exactly what to say to them. He says, go tell my brothers, instead of clinging to this, go tell my brothers, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He tells her exactly what to say for a reason, because he knows that that will be familiar wording to the disciples because not a few days before that, he told them in an upper room something that would call that back to them. He said, now I am going to him who sent me, and you are filled with grief. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So he says to them, he says to her, go tell them, this thing right here, this is about to happen. And it has to happen in order for you to engage with me in a different way. And what is that different way? Well, it's in that verse. He says, go instead to my brothers. Now he has called them disciples. He gets to John 15 and he calls them friends. And now he says, go tell my brothers that I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So now he's saying, that while I was here and while I was alive, we were discipler and disciple. We were rabbi and disciple. We were servant and we were master. We were you know, a person who needed some stuff and a person who had some stuff. That's who we were. You have a new identity now. Now we're family. Now we got the same dad. Now you engage with me in a different way. You don't engage with me in these earthly ways. You now engage with me as the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You now engage with me as an adopted son or an adopted daughter. You now engage with me and my father, our father, in a way that was not possible before I was resurrected, before I died and was raised. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Hold on to me that way, Mary. Hold on to me as your brother, Mary. Hold on to me as family. Hold on to me as the brother who will say to you, girl, you need something from the father? You don't need a priest standing there telling you, I will go do this. Cry, Abba, Father. Cry out to the one who is your father too. Cling that way. So when I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will make it possible for you to cling that way. It's interesting, the language of the Gospels talks a lot about the disciples and about servants and masters and rabbis and those relationships and Jesus is referred to as rabbi, 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 rabbi and, and all of that language is there in the Gospels but once you get out of the Gospels and then you get into the epistles of Paul and you even get into the books of John and you look at James and you look at the writer of Hebrews, the language changes and the language begins to be about fathers and sons and daughters and adoption and families of faith and all of this really familial language. It's beautiful, actually. And it begins to talk about this direct access that we have to God. In Hebrews, it's talking about that God, God is there and that we can approach the throne of grace boldly because he is, he is one who, through faith, it is impossible not to please. And then he says that you can approach the throne of grace because you know that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and that we don't have something sitting in the middle in much the same way that those of you who have children, the neighbor is not going to come to you and say, I know you want to talk to your kids, so I'm going to help you do that. No, you're going to talk to your kids directly. Your kids are going to talk directly to you. Why? Because you're family now. Because you're family. And so now this becomes your identity. This becomes who you are, Mary. This becomes who you are, Joe and Phil and Steve and Karen and whoever else you are, this is who you are. When you are born again into this family, the spirit makes it possible for you and gives you the desire to cry out, Abba, Father. You don't need me to stand up here and tell you who Jesus is. You got access to that by the Holy Spirit that lives in you. He can tell you. He will lead you to all truth. That would have been impossible had Jesus not resurrected and come back. So Jesus didn't go from heaven to earth and live and die and resurrect so that we could then catch ourselves up in finding our, our identity in things like what we do for a living, how much money we have, what we look like, where our children are, how good we are as parents, how great we are as pastors or speakers or whatever it is we happen to be. Jesus no longer needs us to be useful to help him do his work. He wants us to be fruitful in our works because of the spirit that lives in us, because of the spirit that moves through us, that spirit that declares we are sons and daughters. We have a new identity. Mary had a new identity. Peter and James and the rest of them, they had new identities. So now we are focused on that. So let me put this question to you. Who are you looking for in your life? Are you looking for an earthbound Jesus who needs you to help him do his work?
because that Jesus died on a cross. And many of us are like Mary. Our sense of self and self-worth to some degree is wrapped up in our own abilities, our performance, our resources, our lifestyle, our stuff, things that can go up in a good fire. We're like those spices and oil and myrrh and linen rags. We're duty and doing wrapped around an ideal of godly living, but there's no God in it if it's just performance. Our true identity as followers of a risen Christ comes from being his siblings, the beloved sons and daughters of a God who loves us and gave us his spirit. We're heirs to a kingdom, not because we worked for it, but because we were born into it. And by that, we can become fruitful vines of love in the world. Let's pray. Okay, God, curlers in my hair and all, I love me some you this morning. There is no one like you. I appreciate everything that you have given us. I adore you. My prayer today is that we would, as your sons and daughters, and potential sons and daughters, and inquiring sons and daughters, that we would know you, that we would know you intimately, that we would be able to feel like children in your arms at times when you take a child and just throw them up in the air and they have such a great time. It's a little scary sometimes, but then you catch us and we look at you and we laugh and we just say, do it again. God, my prayer is that we would learn to individually enjoy you, to love on you, and let you love on us in ways that would only be imaginable except for the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. We love you today, God. And for those of us who do not know you, my prayer is that we would know you, that we would approach, that we would ask that we would inquire, how can I have that kind of life? How can I be identified with you as savior, as lover of my soul? I thank you for your yes to every person today, Lord. I thank you for every ask. I thank you for this worship experience today because it was really special. And I bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.